So as moms, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Red Coat History Podcast with me, Chris Parkinson. Today's something a little bit different. It's the audio from a full documentary I've made about the first Anglo-Boer War of 1880 to 1881. As you may recall, there's been some episodes in the past, but I wanted to bring them all together and to tell the story of that conflict in one long podcast episode. Originally, this was a film, so there are some references to sites that you won't be able to see. If you want to see those, do go to the Redcoat History YouTube channel where you'll be able to watch them. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe. Please leave a comment. It really helps the podcast to grow. Okay, without further ado, let's get stuck in. This is the scene of a terrible British disaster. It was a defeat that set the scene for a war that exposed many weaknesses of the British Army of the late Victorian era and showed the world the martial skills of a small group of Dutch-speaking farmers in what we now call South Africa. The battles of Bronkhorst Spray, Langsneck and Majuba, the sieges of Pretoria and Potchefstroom, these are just some of the battles we're covering today. This is a full and in-depth documentary, and I'll link my sources in the description below in case you want to read more about this fascinating war. Over the preceding decades, the British Army had lost a number of battles. The garrison of Kabul was wiped out during their retreat in 1842. And of course, there was the shocking Zulu victory at Isandlwana in 1879, well covered on this channel. These defeats and others like them were always avenged in the subsequent fighting. But there was one war during the era where the British were well and truly beaten. That war was against the Afrikaans-speaking Boers of the Transvaal Republic, and it began with a bloody fiasco right here near a small town called Bronkhorstspreit, on the road between Leidenburg and Pretoria. So the first question we have to ask about this fascinating war is why did it happen in the first place? Here's Professor John Laband with more. It's all the uh, great confederation story. I mean, it's, it's the conservative British government decided in the 1870s right to safeguard the route to India, to safeguard our coaling stations, because um, India is really the important thing about the empire. We need a nice, secure South Africa without problems, without wars, without distractions. So the way to sort that out is to make a confederation of all the white-ruled states, which meant the colonies of Natal and the Cape, but also the Boer republics of the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. With Britain already sniffing around, the Transvaal then fought a war against a local black chief called Sekukune of the Pedi tribe. He and his followers ran rings around the Boers, as they would soon do again to the British troops, and the war dragged on. Costs ballooned, and the Transvaal government introduced a tax on the citizens which no one was willing to pay. Bankrupt and surrounded by their black enemies, the sullen burghers, as the citizens were known, of Transvaal begrudgingly accepted British annexation. They actually annexed it in April of um, 1877 with the, you know, just a couple of policemen and all the rest of it and simply drove in and said, well, here we are. And there was disarray in the Boer ranks and all the rest of it. And they sort of sort of said yes. And then then they very much had second thoughts. And then you have a whole process of deputations to London and meetings of throwing off British rule and saying what they wanted to do and how they couldn't stand being ruled by Britain, etc., etc. But in that sort of moment of weakness, they had been annexed. And now it's a question of how they could de-annex themselves. And that, of course, is what the 
the, the well, the Transvaal Rebellion, we, the British certainly called it, because the Transvaal Territory was British territory. So when the Boers rebelled and regained their independence, that was indeed a rebellion. Then, as now, Britain Boer struggled to understand one another. The Boers did not like having a central government that dictated how they should live their lives, and they certainly did not want to pay tax, a sentiment I can understand. Grievances flourished and temperatures began to rise. The Zulu War of 1879 and the initial British defeats showed the Boers that Britain was not unbeatable. And the Boers suddenly perk up and think, well, if the Zulus can beat them, maybe we should as well. Maybe we have a chance. It can be done. And when the High Commission of the time, um, Sir Bartle Frere, went off to the Transvaal in March of 1879 during the Anglo-Zulu War to try and sweet-talk the, the Boers into settle down and please don't rock the boat, um, and actually offered them independence within a confederation, the Boers said, forget it. It's independence or nothing. And it's the taxation issue, which became the critical thing, funny enough, um, in 1880, it was the determination to tax. It was Piet Bezadenhout in Potchefstroom who refused to pay his taxes. It became a law case. Um, he didn't lose it, but he had to pay the legal costs. And the local magistrate um, distrained his wagon in, in lieu of costs. And at that stage, in rode a commander of 100 men to rescue Bezadenhout's wagon. Um, you know, and, and this is November of 1880. And... And it went on from there. And then after that, um, major meetings are called, a huge meeting at Pardacral um, near Pretoria in December of 1880. And the decision was taken to form a government, to create a triumvirate of three people. Paul Kruger was the sort of leading member of that. Um, and to throw off British rule. And basically, they then sent a message to, to Lanyon in Pretoria saying, you know, this is it. We have declared the republic, and you know that's it. Goodbye. Having declared themselves independent again, they sent out orders. General Jaber, who was their commandant general, um, to raise up the commandos to go to war. So it was just simply like that. But it was a long time of brewing, really. Yeah. In late November 1880, Colonel Belairs, who commanded the British troops in the Transvaal, made the sensible decision to try and concentrate more of his men in Pretoria. Two companies of the 94th, as well as the battalion's headquarters element, were based in a small town called Leidenburg. When the orders arrived, their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Anstruther, rustled up what transport could be found, and on the 5th of December, they began the 188-mile journey the column consisted of 263 soldiers, as well as a small number of women, children, and around 60 black wagon drivers. There was more than 30 wagons, and the convoy would have stretched for at least a mile. Now, as anyone who studies military history knows, a column on the move, especially one that lacks an effective cavalry screen, is very vulnerable to attack. And he goes along, um, with, you know, along the road with no... Um no skirmishes or patrols on his flanks to see what's going on, um, taking no precautions whatsoever. Um, the, um, the soldiers, are many of them have their arms actually being carried in the wagons. Um, 
it's and the band is tootling along in front it's it's all quite jolly and sort of amiable and they're now approaching pretoria they're not that as you know having been there it's not that far from pretoria at this stage and they simply had no idea that the boers were there On the 20th of December at around 1pm, the column approached this point where I'm stood now. It's gently sloping with only a minimum of concealment, but using the folds in the landscape and their excellent field craft, around 250 to 300 boars under the command of Commandant Franz Joubert had approached close to the road and were waiting for the British column. As if from nowhere, a large element of this Boer force suddenly appeared on the left of column, close to where I'm looking at a copse of trees. The sight must have sent shivers through the poorly prepared redcoats. The music of the 94th Regiment band abruptly stopped, and under a flag of truce, Joubert's dispatch rider called Paul de Beer came forward with a letter. The message demanded that Anstruffer and his men halt, and that any further movement would be considered an act of war. Anstruffer, as would be expected to be fair, stated that he would follow his orders and continue his advance to Pretoria. While they negotiated, that is where Nicholas Smith, Commandant Nicholas Smith, who's the sort of figure of the Boers in this war, the, the soldier really won all the battles going. He thought, no, we're not going to talk any longer while this is going on. Um, they're in our sights. We're going to shoot. And at that stage, the British had no chance to, de to deploy. All they could do is fling themselves down. And the Boers encircled them, went behind the, the wagons, um, and took them in their flank as well. So really, Anstruther, after a while, just simply had no choice but to give up. I mean, just totally pinned down by fire, you know. You have to remember that the Boer farmers were raised carrying a rifle. These were tough, well-armed men who instinctively knew how to fight a mobile form of modern warfare. The Redcoats were caught in a terrible predicament. Bunched up and in shock, most of the officers were hit within moments, and it seems that command and control was quickly lost. The men even failed to change the sights on their rifles from 400 yards and consequently sent most of their bullets whoosh, soaring over the heads of the Boers. Boer horsemen then swept around the flank of the column where the British memorial is now and attacked the rearguard, wiping it out. Looking south now from the British memorial, there is no sign of the track that the 94th would have been following. There's just a farmer's field. As I swing around, there's a busy main road that intersects the battlefield, right where the column would have been ambushed. Over to my left is now a copse of trees that I can only presume looking at the maps is more or less where the Boers would have been. But at the time, I don't believe it was a tree-lined area. I think it was actually quite bare. Anstruffer may not have been a great tactician, but he was brave. Badly wounded, he still continued to ride up and down the length of the column, encouraging his men. It's also worth drawing attention to the bravery of the women with the column. They helped to tend the wounded under fire, an incredibly dangerous job. In just 15 minutes of hell, it was all over. Anstruffer, realising the futility of the battle, ordered his men to wave their white handkerchiefs. The redcoats then laid down their arms and were quickly surrounded. The casualty figures are very telling. Listen to this, 156 men plus one of the female civilians, a lady called Mrs Fox, were either killed or wounded. That's a casualty rate of 58%, a staggering amount. Not only that, but most of the dead and wounded had been hit multiple times. Anstruffer himself had five gunshot wounds and died a few days later after having his leg amputated. Mrs Fox, meanwhile, badly wounded, survived only to die from her wounds years later. She was buried with full military honours. Her and the other ladies were also awarded the Royal Red Cross decoration. 
So there's a nice memorial here to the men of the 94th. It says, in memory of the members of the 94th Regiment, later 2nd Battalion Connaught Rangers, who were killed in action in this area on the 20th of December 1880, or subsequently died of wounds. It was erected by the Northern Transvaal Soldiers' Graves Association and the South African War Veterans Association, 23rd of April 1961. On the reverse side of the memorial stone for the 94th are the list of names of all those people killed in action. Just picking a few out, there was Richard Ayres, Michael McDonald, Isaac McKee, Patrick McPhillips. It really brings it home how many were killed in such a short space of time. Directly behind that new memorial, they've kind of cemented the old gravestones into a wall. It's not in terrible condition given its age. Here I'm reading one, it says, Sacred to the memory of Lieutenant Colonel P. Anstruffer. 94th Regiment died December 26 of wounds received in action, December the 20th, 1880. Next to him is one for Lef Lieutenant H.A.C. Harrison. Says he was the adjutant 94th Regiment, third son of the late Reverend C.R. Harrison, vicar of North Curry Taunton, Somersetshire. And how many men do you think the Boers lost? Well, there are conflicting reports, but my understanding is just one man was killed and four were wounded. Incredible, isn't it? Now, despite the embarrassment suffered by the Redcoats, there was one reason to still be cheerful. A clever ploy by the plucky Redcoats managed to keep their colours from falling into the hands of the enemy. Some bright spark took the colours and wrapped them around Conductor Edgerton's waist under his coat. They remained hidden there, and he was then one of the men that the Boers allowed to travel to the British garrison at Pretoria to request medical assistance. At the time, this small piece of subterfuge was considered a small victory. The debacle at Bronkhorst Spreit was correctly but conveniently all blamed on Lieutenant Colonel Anstruther, who died within days. There was some controversy at the time over the Boers' use of a flag of truce and a parley to get their men into a better tactical position, but the fact is that it was much easier for the British to blame the defeat on this underhand tactic than the fact that they made a series of errors. It's useful because how do British soldiers lose? Not because they're worse, but they're betray treacherous, scandalously treacherous Boers, you know, took them unawares. That was easier than admitting that the Boers had proved to be superior marksmen and natural guerrilla fighters. This was a lesson that the British would struggle to learn over the coming weeks. For the Boers, the easy victory was seen as a sign from God. It convinced many fence-sitters that they could beat the British. But before we examine in depth the rest of the war and the battles, Let's learn a little bit about the Boer fighters themselves. Who were they and how were they organised? When you look at the Boer population of the Transvaal, there were only 35,000 to 40,000. They were very small. I mean, the, the Africans in the Transvaal outnumbered them 20 to 1. Um, so they were a small community. But all men between the age of 16 and 60 were liable for commando service. Now, this went right back to the Dutch East India Company in the Cape, at the very beginning of the 18th century, when they set up these kind of local militia to um, fight on the frontier. So it's a very old system, which the Boers took with them to the Transvaal during the Great Trek. So, so there they have it. And it's a system whereby, okay, you're liable to serve, you are called up and you arrive with your horse, your ammunition, your, your, your 50 rounds of ammunition, your eight days of supplies, and um, you're ready to go. And it is very much an ad hoc um, situation. You have your 
officers, your Feldkornetta and all the rest of it, but it's not quite as egalitarian as you might think. The British always thought, oh, these guys just, you know, just elect their officers and this means nothing. But in fact, the guys elected to be officers were always local bigwigs, in fact, the local big farmer, the local the local important person who already had an important place in the community and others were used to um, obeying. However, because it was this egalitarian thing, they would argue back. I mean, you know, the officers didn't have the opportunity to court-martial them or imprison them or anything else. If a boy didn't like it, he could just get in his wagon and go home again. So you have this great sort of body of men, not that well organized, but motivated, not in uniform, of course. Um, they're all just in their everyday working clothes. Um, they would arrive with their wagons, which would be their transport, their, well, their, their, the equivalent of caravans. They'd be their, their homes, if you like, for, while, while they're on campaign. So that's how they would do it. Yeah. And we, we have this view uh, that the average Boer commando soldier was born with a rifle in their hand, a, a natural mm. horseman. Mm. How true mm. is that? Were, were they just naturally tough men used to being out in the field or is there a bit of mythologizing mm. around that? Yes, yes and no, because they, they were indeed brought up on farms, most of them. Look, um, in the Transvaal about... Almost all the Boers lived, in fact, in the countryside. There were about 5,000 English-speaking people who um, really ran what, what economy there was in the towns, etc. But most Afrikaners lived in the countryside. So right from an early age, they were hunting, they were shooting. They'd learned not to waste ammunition, which was difficult and expensive to come by. They'd learned to gauge range, which British soldiers certainly didn't very accurately from their hunting. Um, they learned how to use terrain, obviously stalking, stalking their animals and all the rest of it. The Boers were very, very good shots. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, you know, we're talking about a tiny war here because, all right, just to go back to the Boers, 35,000 people altogether, maybe 6,000 men between, you know, 16 and 60, you might be... Um, called up for for action but you never had a Boer commander of more than about 800 men in any one place um, the British had only about 1500 men in garrison in the Transvaal um, Colonel Belairs who was um, the, the the district district commander there I mean you had 1500 men they were scattered over six garrisons around the country small little groupings you know so that's not very much Okay, so moving on, after the Battle of Bronkhorst the commandos were feeling very confident, rightly so. They began to besiege those small British garrisons that were dispersed around the Transvaal. Standerton, Pretoria, Vakerstroom and Potchefstroom were all surrounded. Some of the heaviest fighting was at Potchefstroom, now in the northwest province of South Africa. Its commander was Lieutenant Colonel Richard Winslow of the 2nd 21st Regiment of Foot, aka the Royal Scots Fusiliers. He had served in the Crimea and also been wounded during the Zulu War at the Battle of Alundi. His small garrison comprised two companies of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, 25 mounted infantrymen of the same regiment, a handful of commissariat and medical staff, as well as two guns of N Battery 5th Brigade Royal Artillery. Does that unit ring a bell? Well, to viewers of this channel, it probably will, because they were the same men who were at Isandwana. There was another famous name in the garrison as well, Deputy Assistant Commissary General Walter Dunn, a Rourke's Drift Defender who had been recommended but turned down for a VC after that famous scrap. 
At Potchefstroom, the British troops took up position at a small fort and held on to a handful of other buildings. On the 16th of December, the anniversary of the Battle of Blood River, the Boers began their attempts to storm the British strongpoints. There was a large Boer commando, probably at least 500 men, and they began to harass the British, their musketry making it deadly for the Redcoats to show themselves. We'll come back to the Siege of Potchefstroom later in the documentary because it's fascinating stuff, but for now, let's move on. The British commander in the region, Major General Sir George Pomeroy Colley, was busy in neighbouring Natal, which was British territory, trying to gather whatever small detachments he could. But what sort of man was Colley? His father was a naval officer and the son of Viscount Harberton, so, so Colley comes from the aristocracy. He went to Sandhurst, um, where he came out top of the class, and because of that, he didn't have to buy his commission because this is still commissions were still being sold until 1871. He got he got his first commission without having to pay for it, which happened to particularly bright um, young officers. He then went off and served in the Cape in 1854 for a little while, and then off in the Second Anglo-Chinese War in 1860. So he did all of that, saw saw some action, and it was at Staff College that he. Well, absolutely brilliant record. He finished in half the normal time with the highest marks ever recorded at Staff College. That's very so impressive. That is very impressive. So that was followed by various academic posts in, in the military at Sandhurst and, and so on, and, and at Staff College um, as a professor of tactics and this kind of thing. So he did that. Then, um, and this is where his career changed, he was recruited by Sir Garnet Wolseley. Now, Wolsey, with his the very model of a modern major general, with his idea of, you know, a, a very intelligent, well-trained staff, highly professional, all the rest of it, went off to fight in the Asante War. And he recruited Pomeroy onto his staff to go with him, where Pomeroy did very well with the did, This would have been in the, the Ghana area, is that right? This is right. It's it's now it's now, it's now Ghana, yeah, and it's it's um, yeah, eighteen seventy three, seventy four, and what happened to Kali? He now became part of Wolsey's ring, his Asante ring, or self admiration society, as other other <laughs> other soldiers like to call it. There, there are various rings in the army. Um, there's Roberts's ring in India. There's Wolsey's ring. There's the Duke of Cambridge's more conservative ring. There are all these competing rings, which is one reason, in fact. You don't get concerted um, doctrine in the army because you have all these rings competing in terms of how things should be done. So that was one of the problems with the army. Anyway, Colley is now part of Wolsey's ring. Um, he then goes off with Wolsey in 1875 to Natal. Um, Wolsey is sent out to Natal in 1875 as part of the Confederation project to try and bully Natal into accepting the idea of Confederation. So. Collie is there, so he now sees Natal, he knows the area, he's now quite familiar with it. He then goes off to India, where Lord Lytton is there, the Viceroy. Um, he gets onto his staff, his, his private secretary, in fact. Um, so he's in India. Then he goes back to um, South Africa with Wolsey. When Wolsey supersedes Chelmsford in command of the Anglo-Zulu War, Collie goes out with, with Wolsey as his chief of staff, um, and he then goes back to India after that. Um, and it's while he's in India, in fact, um, that 
he is finally recruited as to take Woolsey's place in South Africa as as High Commissioner of Southeast Africa and Governor of Natal and Governor of the Transvaal and Commander in Chief of the troops in that area. So, so he's job. had this long, a big job. He's had this long career, which is mainly as an administrative soldier. He's never commanded troops in the field. He's a brilliant guy. He knows what should be done. Um, but there it is. He has no, not much practical experience in running a war. Also, as far as the locals in Natal were concerned when he arrived, they, they wondered a bit about him. I mean, he played the Baroque flute. Is this what? And he, he, he was a bird watcher, um, doing things which, <laughs> as far as the, the colonists were concerned, made them worry a bit about this guy's abilities as a soldier. It's his lack of practical experience, which I think is part of Collie's problem. But what about that British army that Collie now commanded? How well trained and how tactically astute were those British redcoats of 1880? What is wrong with the British wasn't so much their military doctrine, because by this period, by the 1880s, having fought so many small wars against um, irregulars of one sort or another around the world, and having been armed for a number of years now with breech-loading rifles, they knew what to do. They knew about skirmishing lines, the same sort of tactics that, that the Boers were using. They knew about this kind of thing. Um, the problem is, it's how well it was actually implemented. The other problem was that their firing was really bad. Um, again, there was musketry instruction, um, but usually it's at Aldershot, etc., against fixed targets. They weren't used to shooting against moving targets. Um, and they had very little practice. The, the British Army was very stingy about wasting ammunition in practice. Collie knew that he had to act quickly. The small number of British troops surrounded and outgunned across the Transvaal could not be expected to hold out for too long. But Collie was arrogant and he saw the Boers as an ill-disciplined rabble. Therefore, he wanted to act quickly with what troops he had available, not wait for a serious number of reinforcements. But, as we know, the Boers were tactically excellent and they also moved quickly, advancing into Natal to occupy the key strategic position of Lang's Neck. Lang's Neck overlooks the main road from Natal to Transvaal, just under the imposing peak of the nearby Majuba mountain. Lang's Neck was clearly a key position, and so the Boer commander, Piet Joubert, built sangers of rocks and dug some trenches to make it as formidable as possible. On the 28th of January 1881, Collie thought he was ready, and he sent his men to storm Lang's Neck. He had at his disposal just over 1,200 officers and men, including five companies of the 58th Rutlandshire Regiment, five companies of the 3rd Battalion of the 60th Rifles, and about 150 cavalrymen of the Mounted Squadron, there was also a party of Royal Navy sailors with two seven-pound guns and a unit of men from the Royal Artillery with four nine-pounder guns. The Boers probably had about 2,000 men in the area, but only about 400 were dug in at Lang's Neck. At 0745, the leading British units approached those Boer positions, and just after 20 past nine, the rockets and artillery opened fire. Commence the bombardment of Lang's Neck. The British expected that the Boers would retreat in the face of an artillery barrage, but like good soldiers, they stayed calm, kept their heads down and held their fire. After an ineffectual 15-minute barrage, the Rutlandshire Regiment was sent forward. The five companies advanced up the steep spur, coming under a withering fire. Then, prematurely, the mounted infantry, who were supposed to be protecting the flanks of the 58th, charged. 
These men were not experienced horsemen and were on untrained mounts. Their attack was a disaster. But in classic British style, despite the debacle unfolding, there was still time for a Victoria Cross to be won. Major Brownlow, who led the charge, was thrown from his horse and his servant, Private John Dugan, scrambled off his own horse and gave it to him. Dugan, twice wounded in the affair, managed to get his officer to safety. A brave man indeed. Meanwhile, the 58th were advancing into the killing ground. Bunched up and with no cover, they suffered heavily from the work of the Boer marksmen. And up they went in column, for goodness sake. And then when, when they're nearly, near, nearly at the top, they then tried to um, get into, into skirmishing line and move, maneuver into that and were completely, that didn't work because by then they were being you know, enfiladed on every single side. Colonel Dean, in charge of them, out of ideas, ordered his men to fix bayonets and charge. But they were exhausted from the climb and caught in a murderous hail of lead. Dean himself was soon killed. But a man viewers of this show may know, Major Lucky Essex, who had survived the Battle of Isandwana, managed to lead the survivors back down the slope to safety. As an aside, the 58th had been proudly flying their regimental colours throughout the battle but now they were quickly rushed away from the fight so that they couldn't be lost to the enemy. This was the last time that regimental colours were carried into battle. With the accuracy of modern rifle fire, it was rightly concluded that carrying the colours was a death sentence. In the course of the battle, the British had fired 9,000 rounds of rifle ammunition and lost 200 killed and wounded. The 58th Regiment had lost a staggering 35% of the soldiers engaged. The Boers, on the other hand, had lost just 16 men killed and 27 wounded. The Boers' coolness under fire, their marksmanship and their skill had come as a big shock to Collie. He had expected this war to be over quickly. Now he was beginning to get concerned. After the battle, the Boers began to push patrols deep into British territory. Collie's forward operating base was at the end of a long supply line and he didn't have enough cavalry to secure the area. He decided that a show of force was necessary to push the Boers away from his lines of supply. On the 8th of February 1881, he led a column of troops south towards Newcastle, the nearest major town. The column included the detachment of mounted infantry, two nine-pounder guns and three companies of the 3rd Battalion 60th Rifles. But Boer Scouts had been watching them, and their commander, Nicholas Smith, yep, the same guy who had smashed the British at Bronkhorst attacked them at a place called Ingogo. Yet again, Boer marksmanship was superior, and the British were pinned down and picked off. In the late afternoon, there was a thunderstorm and there was a pause in the fighting. Collie was now in a difficult and dangerous position. Almost surrounded by the Boers, overloaded with casualties and in danger of being cut off by the rains that were threatening to flood the Ngogo River that needed to be crossed, he was left with little choice but to order his men to make a daring night march in order to escape. With the Boers retiring to a nearby farm to warm up, eat food and plan their assault at first light, Collie's column silently and professionally withdrew. Amazingly, despite losing men drowned in the river crossing, the force did manage to return safely to their fob at Mount Prospect at about 4am on the 9th. But despite this success, there was little reason to celebrate. Once more, the Boers had proved their superiority, inflicting horrific casualties. The rifles alone had suffered a 40% casualty rate, and in total, the British lost 69 killed and nearly 80 wounded. All casualties, 8 killed, 10 wounded. Meanwhile, back at Potchefstroom, the siege was becoming a bloody and uncomfortable fight. The Boers, being sensible men, were not keen to launch a frontal assault and seemed intent on forcing a surrender through first starvation and the skills of their marksmen making every movement dangerous for the defenders. 
but if there's one thing British soldiers have always excelled at, it's dogged defence. Ian Bennett writes in his excellent book on the siege, the British never gave the Boers any inkling of their parlous condition. Indeed, Cronje, the Boer commander, was to tell Winslow later that had he guessed the weak state of the garrison, he would have stormed the fort. It was not in the nature of Victorian officers to be intimidated in adversity, and typically those at Potchefstroom, enthusiastically supported by their men, did their utmost to irritate and frustrate the Boers. The usual round of jaunty bugle calls indicated that the disciplined daily routine was being maintained, while the sound of singing accompanied by trilling flutes hardly suggested the garrison was under pressure. During some particularly boring and quiet spell at night, the irrepressible Rundle would seek permission from Winslow to give a screech. Told he must first warn the sentries, he would clamber upon the parapet and let out a series of unearthly yells, much to the amusement of the soldiers, quickly dropping back into cover to avoid the fire that the startled boars returned from every direction. Good old British pluck. Food was low and water had run out. Only the rains kept the defenders replenished. Early in January, the Boers tried a rather bizarre deception plan that they hoped would lure the defenders out from behind their walls. They faked a message to the fort claiming that a relief column was approaching and that the garrison should sally out when they heard gunfire. The unmilitary language used in the message rang alarm bells and Winslow correctly saw that it was a fake and ignored it, even when the besieging Boer forces staged a fake gun battle on the edge of town to try and tempt them out and the other besieged forts were also holding strong. The defence of Pretoria, Potchefstroom, Leidenberg, Marabastad and Vakastroom were the battles where the British were giving good accounts of themselves. The Union flag still waved proudly. So I think this shows two things. Firstly, as I mentioned, that the British have always been good at defending fixed positions. We've always been exceptional in defence, very dogged, very tough. But secondly, I think what it shows is that the Boers, masters of a war of manoeuvre, were not cut out for siege warfare. They weren't the sort of men who liked to dig trenches and sit there for months on end. We were to see that again in the second Anglo-Boer War, which we'll cover in another film. Anyway, let's get back to our luckless General Collie down on the border. He was planning another daring attack. His plan now was to seize this imposing feature known as Majuba. The mountain rises 6,000 feet above sea level and dominates the surrounding terrain. I intend to seize the crest of the Majuba under cover of darkness and from there mount an attack. The mountain of Majuba dominates the area. General Collie, deciding he needed a big victory, led his men in a night march up this slope on the night of the 26th and 27th of February. His plan entailed occupying the top, which the Boers bizarrely abandoned every night despite having pickets on it during the day. He hoped that the capture of this dominating feature would be enough to force the Boers to withdraw from the neighbouring hill of Lang's Neck. So from the side of Majuba Hill, I'm looking east, and where I'm pointing, that is Lang's Neck. You can see the road snaking through. That was where the Battle of Lang's Neck was that preceded this one. And that is a very strategic point because that is the main invasion route if the British wanted to come back into the Transvaal as it was then. Well, the, the main point that Pichu Bear of the commandos could protect, because if he held this area, he could stop the British from relieving their garrisons in the Transvaal, quite correct. He now had a number of reinforcements to help him, but did the men still have the stomach for a fight after their recent defeats? No, I mean, the morale was very low. I mean, about a third of the force had been killed or was ill by this stage, um, but the reinforcements were arriving. You see, I mean, when you look at, when you look at um, the people involved in Majuba, I mean, half of them were reinforcements. They weren't the original people who had, um, well, the, 
the 60th red the 60th rifles and the 58th had been at lang's neck but the 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 gordon highlanders the 92nd the the 15th hussars and others these were all part of the reinforcements so it is already a, a you know you've you've had this injection of blood um you know that the forces are building up at newcastle more and more so so yeah demoralized as you are to an extent there is a sense that help is on the way and that you know you'll be able to do it so i think this perhaps is the attitude among the rank and file if you like what collie was quite thinking about is perhaps something else something much more personal in in a sense reputations to be regained yeah and what was collie's big plan then what did he hope to achieve with the battle of majuba yeah you know the trouble is he kept it very quiet um um, Colonel Stewart, his chief of staff, he told him about it, he knew about it, and other officers, he simply told them on a need-to-know basis, you know, so so there is no real um, clear sort of, you know, set of orders laying out just what was absolutely intended. We know that he wrote to his wife, left, um, left her a letter um, when he went up, uh, a rather sort of moving letter, but basically saying, this is a gamble. Life is a gamble. I'm playing. I'm playing the last card. You know. Um, so he saw it as such. I mean, he was determined to get his reputation back. And look, if you think of someone like Lord Chelmsford, huge disaster at Saint Luana. He then wins the Battle of Alundi. In fact, after he'd been superseded, but nonetheless, he ignores ignores instructions, goes ahead, wins the Battle of Alundi, and it does resuscitate his reputation to an extent anyway he can go back as as the victor and not the complete loser and i think as far as collie's concerned if he had one success in the field this at least would well rescue some of his reputation this is the idea and that and and this this was the throw i mean the throw the throw the throw the gamble of the gambler i mean in his own words this this is what he intended i mean just what he hope to get or do how he hoped what he hoped Majuba would actually do is another matter but the intention of winning a battle was was what he was after. Collie's force was a real mixed bag of nearly 600 men though not all of them were assigned to the top of the hill. His force comprised two companies of the 58th regiment of foot, two companies of the 3rd battalion 60th rifles, three companies of the 92nd highlanders aka the Gordon highlanders and a company-sized detachment of the naval brigade drawn from the crews of HMS Bodicea and HMS Dido. There were also small elements of some other units, as well as local black scouts and three journalists. With hindsight, it seems strange that Collie didn't just choose one entire battalion for the operation. As you'll see, this lack of cohesion was to cost the force dearly. I think the thinking was he was giving, certainly as far as the 58th and the, and, and the, and the, and the rifles are concerned, a chance to redeem their reputation. So he wanted them to be part of the action as such. And I think he simply wanted to use then the best troops available. I mean, look, the Gordon Highlanders, they've been fighting in Afghanistan. There were mountain troops as such, or should have been, and they were they were really good. And the Naval Brigade he took up as well. Well, the Naval Brigade was certainly part of it. They were very good troops. I think so he wanted a combination of good troops and um, some of these um, short service regiments that he was worried about who 
you know, hadn't done so well to give them a chance to redeem themselves. It would have been more useful if you'd taken artillery up, but he didn't have mules. He didn't have, and the mountain guns, which you take apart, as you know, um, he could have got those seven pounders up there, but he didn't do it. Lack of, lack of, uh, say, um, of, of livestock to actually take them up. The mountain's very steep. He decided not to do it. I mean, I think Collie's plan was to take Majuba, to hold it, and to wait for the reinforcements to come up, by which stage the Boers probably would decide, too strong in front of Lang's neck, we're outflanked anyway, we will just retire. That, I think, was the idea, but um, didn't turn out that way. <laughs> so this is where the Boer encampment was, down here. Yeah, it's still a campsite. Uh, all the Boers were camped here with uh, their wagons, horses, horse lines, and that sort of thing. So we're looking at uh, Majuba. The highest point you can see slightly to the right is a little um, prominence there. Uh, that's the highest point of Maju Majuba, which is McDonald's uh, copy. Slightly to the left and in the foreground, so not on the, not on the skyline, in the foreground is a little, um, a little rise, which is Gordon's Knoll, which played a crucial part in the, in the battle. It's just above that, uh, the, the, the cliff face there that perhaps sort you can see. Ridge. The rocky ridge, yeah. Just about, it's just a it's little... Almost like a little pimple. Like a little pimple, yeah. You're quite right, but crucial. As we will, uh, as we will find it's out funny later. From here, it looks so inconsequential. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. To climb up the mountain, Sean and I are following the route taken by one of the groups of Boer soldiers tasked with retaking the position. It's a hard climb. We've got a lot of greenery here now, a lot of trees, a lot of bushes. But Sean was telling me none of this would have been here at the time. These are all modern-day imports. At 3.40 a.m., Collie climbed up here and quickly allocated the men to their positions. But in the dark, some units became separated and later rivals were simply sent to wherever there were gaps in the perimeter, often alongside men from different units that they didn't know or trust. Nothing short of hunger could turn us off the Majuba mountain. As the sun rose, General Collie commented, we could stay here forever. And looking down the hill now, you can see why he was so confident. Surely no one could advance up these steep slopes under fire, could they? So confident were the men that they shouted to the surprised Boers below and shook their fists triumphantly. But the British didn't know the ground well, and they weren't aware that gullies and dead ground would allow the Boer attackers to get very close to the top of the hill in relative safety. About 450 Boers under the command of General Pete Joubert quickly organised themselves and began to move up the slopes. So we're just coming out of the dead ground. We're just emerging from cover. And only now are we starting to get into view of where the British defenders would have been. Yeah, so now you can clearly see that little pimple that you called, that you referred to earlier. It's now, from here anyway, it's the highest part of the mountain. That's where the 92nd Gordon Highlanders were. And this is where the, the Boers they had to come up here. Now they had to cross this 100, 150 meters in open, open ground. Now they were in danger. So what they did was retreated back. The old guys fired into onto the skyline to keep the British heads down. And in small groups, five, ten, they would run across this open, dangerous ground. 
and take up a position directly underneath the cliffs and they're back in safety again. Surprisingly, the British troops were not ordered to build any defences. In hindsight, that does seem a bizarre oversight. Some units, though, did use their initiative and began piling stones to make makeshift breastworks or sangers. If there's any pastime better than hiking on battlefields, I don't know what it is. Actually, I do know one thing. As the fighting intensified, Collie seemed to totally lose control of the situation. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's overconfidence. Um, and, you know, I mean, we know that Collie just went to sleep in the middle of it all. I mean, you know. Literally. I mean, he was literally, yeah, yeah. You know, at his headquarters near, 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 the, um, near, near the hospital. I mean, he had a sleep. Um, it's just underestimation, which you'd have thought after Bronco sprayed Lang's neck and Ngogo, that you wouldn't be underestimating these guys for a moment. When Lieutenant Ian Hamilton ran over this exposed neck multiple times requesting reinforcements for the northern tip of the peninsula, Collie begrudgingly gave him just six more men, refusing to believe how serious the situation was becoming. So Hamilton was having to run across here oh, to go running up past where Sean is, over the top, to where Collie and the headquarters element were. Over to uh, my left in the front there is Gordon's Knoll. Now you can see we are now on the eastern side of Gordon's Knoll, so the Boers, when they got to this position, could fire into the right-hand side of the British, which is called enfilading fire. They massed here, Boers massed in this area and launched a furious attack on Gordon's Knoll, um, killing pretty much everybody that was on that knoll. Two survived who ran back with Lieutenant Hamilton back up the top of the hill and the Boers then surged up here and took that position, Gordon's Knoll. And from Gordon's Knoll they were now probably 40 to 50 meters perhaps from the actual British line which is on the top of the hill which is where we're going to get to now. Yeah you can really see that dead ground from here. Once the boars were under there there's no way you could get them. On the right hand side now you can see McDonald's copy which I mentioned right at the beginning. That is the highest point but from here to the British line is probably 60 meters or so. This was from here from here, the Boers then were in a position, they consolidated, and all three of the, um, of the attacking forces uh, were closing in for the final assault, closing in for the kill. The reserves which Collie had been holding back were now ordered to reinforce the threatened northern perimeter. But the men were confused and shaken. They needed cohesion and strong leadership and they had neither. The British regiments, one of the main reasons why they were defeated apart from the topography was that command and control was lost. You had the 92nd Highlanders who had um, a khaki top and a kilt, greenish kilt. You had the Naval Brigade who had blue uniforms. You had the 58th Regiment who had red uniforms and you had the King's Royal Rifles who had a dark green uniform. But on the assault up the mountain all these different units got intermingled and so their officers were mixed up and you know in, in the army um, in any attacking force you need 
command and control. You need somebody that can take charge and give you orders because the ordinary troops are not capable of acting on their own. They need to listen to orders. You know, there's another point. If I'm thinking of small group cohesion and that kind of thing, when you man the perimeter, you're doing it at 15 pace intervals. These guys, you, your your buddy is, you know, way over to your right or your left. I mean, it's a long it's, way. It's, um, it's a long. It's a long way. And with that command and control having broken down, uh, it was pretty much chaos towards the end, particularly where uh, there were desertions, British troops were in ones and twos running back towards where they had come from. And so the line faltered and eventually with the Boers attacking over the front, uh, and they just poured through and chased the British off, down off the back to Sailors Knoll and then down uh, back to their camp. The Boers had adapted the classic horns of the buffalo formation so beloved of the Zulu Impis and they'd begun to work around Collie's flanks. Soon a general panic set in amongst the British. Small groups of demoralised men began to break off and make a dash for the rear, their own officers being forced to threaten to shoot them. But despite the disaster unfolding in classic British style, there was still time for a Victoria Cross to be won. Lance Corporal Farmer of the Army Hospital Corps, standing over the badly wounded Surgeon Landon, was shot in each arm, but continued to wave his bandages to indicate to the Boers that they were shooting at wounded men. It was a brave deed that undoubtedly saved a number of lives. In the confusion, Collie himself was killed. This talk, he was shot while trying to surrender with a handkerchief, you know, carried on his sword. At stories of a young boy of 12 sort of shooting him down at close range, we don't actually know. All we know is, like most of the soldiers who were killed, he was shot through the head, you know, and and probably at that stage, um, trying to stem the retreat. I mean, he was heard to sort of mumble, oh, my men, do not run, <laughs> you know, um, you know, um, trying to stop the retreat, um, waving his pistol, um, his revolver rather, um, you know, but, but it, all, it all got away from him and he was standing up um, and, and, was, and was shot down. And I mean, that's, that's all we know. We're just behind the British line now. Um, and General Collie, who was the overall commander of British forces, uh, was killed in this spot here. This marks where he fell. His body was taken back. Uh, and he's buried where the British camp was, Mount Prospect, which is probably about 10 miles or so from here. He's, the British camp is now a cemetery, a military cemetery, and he is uh, buried there. But this is where he was killed. Uh, there is quite a lot of um, argument, perhaps, as to who killed General Collie. Um, and it's one of those things we would rather just leave it for uh, another conversation. But the Boers obviously all claim to have killed him but uh, yeah he was killed together with the numbers vary but probably 93 british soldiers were died on the mountain out of 400 that eventually got to the top another brave man was lieutenant hector mcdonald of the 92nd he led about 20 men in a determined last stand believing that he could rally the rest of the force it's said that as the Boers closed in, he set about them with his fists before eventually being overpowered and captured. As an aside, MacDonald had joined the army as a private and had risen through the ranks, eventually becoming a major general. He was a true warrior, but tragically took his own life in 1903, following a scandal in Ceylon, now known as Sri Lanka. 
So I'm stood in what was called the depression. As you can see, it's surrounded by, by these knolls and these ridges. And this was where uh, the headquarters element was. And I think somewhere over here was where the first aid post was. And right behind me now is where there's a small British cemetery. And inside, there's 93 names commemorated of those who were killed. Collie himself, of course, was killed, but he was buried elsewhere. This one I'm looking at now says, RIP in memory of 33 NCOs and men of the Gordon Highlanders, killed in action February the 27th, 1881. As I pan over to the left, there's a stone here. I'm struggling to read it. Erected by the officers, non-commissioned officers and men of the 58th Regiment. So similar to the, the other older stone behind me. And here's a list of names. Included are Privates Addington, Richardson, Smith, Stone, and many others. And so the battle was lost. The British streamed away to escape. Their commander dead and their hopes for a swift end to the war dashed. The British were now entirely on the defensive and in a difficult position. The government in London had lost their stomach for a fight. Sir Evelyn Wood, star of the Zulu War, was now the senior British man on the ground and he was instructed to begin peace talks. On the 23rd of March, the formal agreement was signed, essentially giving independence to the Transvaal. The British garrison at Potchefstroom, after an amazing three-month defence, finally surrendered. But this was after the armistice had been signed. With their supplies finished, they were tricked into doing so by the Boer commander, who didn't inform them that hostilities had ended. The other garrisons, though, never surrendered, and they were able to march out with the full honours of war. The army, desperate to regain its honour, was outraged at the peace and desperate for revenge. They had been outfought and outthought by just a small number of Afrikaans-speaking farmers. It would be 1899 before the army would get their chance to avenge their defeat. That was the Second Anglo-Boer War, but that's a story for another day. Well, there you have it, guys. If you found that interesting, please like, subscribe, leave a comment, all that fun stuff. You can also register for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com newsletter. When you do that, you'll get a free book all about the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. All right, guys, take care. We will ride again soon.